this morning going through the newspapers with us here. We've Alison O'Connor, a columnist with the Irish Examiner, Dan O'Brien, chief economist with the Institute of International and European Affairs and a columnist with independent newspapers, and Harry Brown, lecturer in journalism at the Dublin Institute of Technology. Good morning to you all. Morning. It is a year morning, to the day since the general election. That's kind of grim, isn't it? And so... I'm inclined to say so much has happened, but yet you could argue that of a lot of the wrong things rather than the right ones over the last 12 months, especially in the last couple of weeks in relation to Fine Gael and this, this sense of drift that has uh, that has that has set in the concern that uh, while not a lot was being done, that even less is being done now and that over the next couple of months, really, because the Taoiseach hasn't indicated exactly when he's going to step down, that this sort of malaise or lethargy or in in terms of getting things done that are good for the for the country, not in terms of what is going on within uh, Fine Gael, who are trying to pretend they're not having a leadership race when in, in well, fact they are, but obviously having one. Um, it's, you know, it's just not good. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost cliche to trot it all out again with what's happening in America with Donald Trump, with Brexit. It's the time when we really need people who are on the ball and, um, you know, trying to trying to get ahead of things. And that's certainly not, well, we feel, not the way things are. We feel a lot more discombobulated, <clears throat> Harry, than we did this time last year, to use that wonderful word. It's a great word. In a way, though, it was also predictable. So many people, anybody with political savvy that I talked to a year ago, just after the election, said, and it will get one year. You know, and the, the clock is running now, and in about a year's time, there'll be some kind of crisis will get whipped up, and he'll have to sort of start to make his way to the exit, and we'll have a little bit of discombobulation, and we're moving on. You know, but it, it really is just, uh, it's just spectacle, really, because it doesn't, we know that it doesn't have any really important effect on policy down the line, that anyone who replaces Enda is going to be working within the same constraints and the same politics as, as he has been. Uh, there isn't... Uh, a long program of exciting legislation that's being held up uh, in the in the Oireachtas. So it seems like, um, and and partly, of course, this whole uh, spectacle has, uh, for the most part, replaced the scandal that gave rise to it, uh, the, the immediate scandal that gave rise to it. Although I must say there are a couple of good stories in relation to the Mars McCabe scandal in the paper today. But the uh, but by and large, we are we are quite fully distracted by the uh, you know by what's going on uh, or what's not going on in the Fine Gael party. Uh, Dan, your column has put forward a few potential doomsdays over the last while, made worse by international events, not to mind domestic ones. We do have that sense that we're not far... We've travelled a very rocky road over the course of the last 12 months in this country, Mm. yet we don't seem to be... Really, new politics hasn't done much in terms of economics and in terms of setting out what it means to be Irish in Ireland of 2017. Yeah, well, that, I, I was making that point in a column during the week that it, it, around the world, or certainly the Western world, you see economies are actually doing better. You know, economies in the Western world, in, in most cases, are doing better than they've done since the global financial crisis almost a decade ago. And at the same time, we've got this unprecedented political uncertainty, the Brexit piece, the Trump piece, you know, still a lot of problems in Europe, whether it's Italian banks or all sorts of disagreements. So there seems to be this diversion between bad politics and healthy economics, which I don't think I'd last, but it's certainly something that we've seen. And we've certainly seen it in this country. There's been a weaker government. This has probably been the weakest government, one of the weakest governments in the history of the state under this new politics. But it hasn't fed in to economic uncertainty. In fact, the economy 
did did pretty well. There's some signs of softness in the second half of last year, but overall uh, the economy did pretty well. So politics, bad politics, didn't infect the economy in this country. And we, yet, 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 yet is the word. Anyway, let's go through the front of the Sunday papers uh, this morning to begin our discussions properly. The Sunday Business Post uh, have uh, Leo and uh, Simon there. Twenty seven percent for Simon Coveney, twenty nine percent for Leo. That's the uh, popularity for them to be the next leader of Fine Gael. Um, their main story, though, revealed AIB plan to sell off thousands of home mortgages, which is probably going to alarm you if you are the owner of one said same mortgage. Uh, state-owned AIB will, within weeks, unveil a radical plan to offload thousands of struggling mortgages secured on family homes. The bank, which is being lined up for partial sale this year by the government, is also coming under increased pressure from regulators to get its non-performing loans problem under control. AIB, the paper understands, is in advance talks with several market participants about solutions to its mammoth non-performing mortgage book estimated by Investec at being 2.9 billion late last year. Picture the happy pair couple, the, the twins, the, the two of them in the, no shirts and ties and there's another story about pictures like that upsetting the likes of the gentleman in the room by putting forward on unrealistic expectations <laughs> for us but we'll move on from that to the Sunday Independent. Uh, warning that Fianna Fáil, warning to Fianna Fáil that turns up heat in Fianna Gael leadership battle, secret recording of election threat puts Coveney and Varadkar at odds in dramatic contest twist. That headline <laughs> sucked me in. By God, I was intrigued how disappointed I was by the content of the article. Um, Fianna Gael leadership candidate Simon Coveney has made a dramatic general election warning at a behind-closed-doors meeting of Fine Gael, the Sunday Independent can reveal. The newspaper received a secret recording of Mr Coveney's threat to Fianna Fáil at a meeting in County Kerry last Friday night. The housing minister told Fine Gael members that should he be elected Fine Gael leader, he intends... Now, sit down. Micheál Martin, if you are listening, <laughs> sit down, because this is going to really hit you where it hurts. He, Simon Coveney intends to draw a line in the sand with Micheál Martin. Full, full, full page story <laughs> on the front of the paper based on that. And who leaked that recording <laughs> is what I want to know. I think it was in Kerry, Harry. They're always at that down there. Uh, Paul, terror fears but refugees welcome. Um, growing concern that Ireland's immigrant policy will be exploited by terrorists who come here posing as genuine migrants. Um, the Sunday Times, Varadkar aims at grassroots in leadership bid. A less dramatic headline, uh, but uh, it's kind of similar playbook. Leo Varadkar is planning a ground war to win the Fine Gael leadership, building support amongst grassroots members and councillors before targeting undeclared TDs and senators near the end of the campaign. Uh, key supporters of the Social Protection Minister are attending party meetings and functions across the country where they claim to have found majority support for Radcar in some rural branches. Although if you dig into it in the Sunday Business Post, it's done a lot of work on this. Leo Radcar very popular amongst the representatives of Fine Gael in Dublin. Not so much down the country because Simon Coveney was the Minister for Agriculture so would have met them more regularly so he has a bit of a lead there. Um, August move for All-Ireland Finals also there under a picture of Johnny Sexton who clearly uh, kicked uh, that was the drop goal actually yesterday that's what that picture is from the first and third Sundays in September no longer the big dates in the Irish sporting calendar after the GAA voted yesterday to stage an All-Ireland hurling and football final 
In August, uh, obviously one for each, the new format known as the Super 8 will be used in football championships for three years from 2018, replacing the quarter-final setup that we have now. And the Irish Mail on Sunday, a patient trapped for four years in hospital. A patient who is medically fit to leave hospital has been waiting over four years to get out. Astonishing new HSE figures reveal. Moreover, that patient is one of 13 who have been kept for over a year in badly needed acute care beds. Figures in the past two years show 119 people have spent more than a year on delayed discharge lists where they are fit to leave. Now that is something we've all heard anecdotally but uh, the fact that somebody would be there for four years that beggars belief and that's on the mail on Sunday. Uh, Let's begin the conversation with our panel uh, uh, with Trump who isn't on the front pages but is never too far from them I think it's fair to say. Um, Harry this decision not to attend the the correspondence dinner. Now, the correspondence dinner in recent years has been an opportunity for the president of the day to roast, yeah. to use that phrase, yeah. um, the media. Uh, Trump isn't even going to do that. He's just not going. What message is that sending out in, in this escalation of his war with the media? It's uh, it's it's exactly as you say. It's a uh, it's a, a visible escalation of this war and a war that actually I think probably serves both uh, protagonists pretty well. The uh, the media are are the particularly the media outlets who are sort of being positioned as the enemy, the likes of the New York Times and CNN, Washington Post. I've actually been doing quite well out of it in terms of uh, uh, ratings, clicks, subscriptions, etc. And Trump's uh, rhetoric against them plays pretty well with his base, too. So you you have a kind of a uh, a mutual, uh, a mutually acceptable level of warfare going on here, where each side can scream at the other one a little bit, fake news, or you know, uh, f- you know, uh, preventing the media from doing its democratic duty. But really. The Correspondents' Dinner is one of those kind of uh, staged events that is a real sign of what's wrong in Washington anyway, the, the kind of the coziness that exists the between the clique, the, the sense of a kind of a, a happy family that behind the apparent scrapping. And in fact, that, that sense of happy family, that sort of bipartisanship has been breaking down in Washington in social terms anyway. There's not the same kind of partying between journalists, Republicans and Democrats that there was in years gone by. And in some respects, this is kind of a reflection of the way that change has taken place. And I don't think it's a particularly uh, alarming change, to be honest. The idea that some media outlets are sort of waking up to the idea that uh, perhaps they are antagonistic to th- uh, the government is uh, is no bad thing. But now, that's, a, that's in, a good thing. I, yeah. I, let, I was thinking myself, and, and Alison, you can come in on this as well, having trotted the beat that we do. I'd much prefer to be on the outside of the tent if, if a decision had been made, because that meant I was doing my job properly. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I apologies to my hoarseness, it can't be easy to listen to. Um, it, it, I agree with Harry and all of that. I think it, it was just far too cosy, this. And for once I found, when I saw that Donald Trump had said he wasn't going to go, for once I found myself in agreement with them that one side called called time on, on it. There's been a lot of speculation in the last few weeks, you know, about whether it, it should go ahead or not. And he's the one who said, OK. This just just isn't going to happen. I mean, in in recent years, I think the New York Times, for instance, ha- hasn't gone. And in if if anything good is to to come out of it, I think it will be that. I mean, who knows where where all of this is headed? Given that it's Trump that we're dealing with, but that it had become, I think, a little bit the the situation between the White House press corps and the president. Maybe it's no harm that it need that it's going to get a little bit of a shaking up. But as ever with Trump, the worry is. 
where where is that going where is that going to end and that scenario that 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 Harry painted between you know Trump having a go at the media the media having a having a go at Trump it playing to Trump's base and it assisting the media in terms of even subscriptions for the New York Times clicks whatever looking at it from this side <clears throat> and feeling very anti-Trump you're just wondering well who who eventually wins out you know how damaging in the long term is it is it to the media or how many ordinary Americans are there, are there who you know see what Trump is at for what it is or who see it as a good thing that the media are are to be distrusted that's the bit the the unknown and the bit that's worrying and that only t- only time will tell yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, I can't think of examples, with the exception of the Iraq war, where the US mainstream media didn't report on something and that you could put coziness or being too close to power as being a, a reason for not reporting stories. Now, I don't know if Harry can think uh, of, uh, given given that you obviously as an American follow it closely, but I can't, apart from the Iraq war, where a group think thing set in in the US media, where most of the US media supported the, the invasion and took the, the, the line coming out of, uh, of the administration, that the U.S. media report stuff, and, and because they have contacts, a lot of contacts w- with the political system in, in, in Washington, doesn't mean they pull stories and they don't cover stories. Hmm. So I'm not sure there's yeah. a problem. There is a, I, I would be concerned that you even see now increasingly of um, where even Fox News hosts, for instance, are critical of, a, of, of things that Trump has done. Yeah. One of the concerns would be then that the Trump, the Trumps, I mean, look, that's not to overstate that. It's not as if they've suddenly changed, changed their colours. But but if that were to increase as time would go on, you would be concerned about where Trump supporters would then get what we might term their legitimate news. Well, they're already getting, and they're getting it, it on. But I mean, that there's no that there would be if then there would be absolutely no outside um, influence, if you can call it that, no counterbalance at all, you know, throw, throws up its own concerns it's to add into the mix. Marion McKeown has a very good piece yeah. in the Sunday Post, Sunday Business Post this week, where she talks about CPAC, which is this conservative yeah. conference that Trump and his, his cronies all uh, addressed during, during the week. The week. Um, and, and she made the point that at the same event last year, it was that nobody thought Trump had a snowball's chance in hell. They'd written him off. It was all about the other candidates, the Marco Rubios. Uh, and, you know, she was back there with such a different setup. And it, it you talked about the Malays at the start, Alison. This is another example of Malays, just in a different country and a different kind of translation. Uh, the, the, the Republican Party are looking at this, presumably at the moment, delighted that they have control of everything, but worried that they probably don't have as much control as they should do. Yeah, but I mean, feeling you have control of everything and having Donald Trump at the helm is sort of feeling like you have control over a grenade that has had the, the, pin, pulled the pin pulled out of it. You know, so I mean, it's it's a very precarious sort of a delight, if if you like. And I mean, I'm sh- I think that even many of the Republicans, while on one hand, I think quite happy about, you know, where things have been going and the, the stock exchange and, and that general sense of buoyancy must, you know, must be aware that, you know, the whole thing could, you know, 
could I was not going to say topple but ignite because mm. he's so combustible Harry in Brown. a second. He, he is combustible but he's also a great distraction for them. The fact that uh, you know the media sees themselves as to a certain extent at war with Trump and are constantly going on about his personal uh, foibles means that the Republicans actually have a pretty clear run like, policy. That's, that's offensive to the word foibles. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beg your pardon. It's Sunday morning. I'm trying to be polite. But the uh, there, but there is a definite sense that the Republicans uh, are. I think happy to have Trump up there waving his arms around and attracting a lot of attention. And meanwhile, there is a policy agenda that they can pursue, which, of course, is not necessarily the one that Trump ran on. It's not necessarily the one that's going to save the Rust Belt or develop or restore the American infrastructure. But it's uh, it's their long term uh, political project. And so I think that there's uh, there's an extent to which the Republicans are going to make hay while the sun shines. Uh, Obviously, there are plenty of conspiracy theories out there about how much time the Republicans are planning to give. Trump, uh, what combination of CIA, FBI, Mike Pence and Dick Cheney are going to bring him down in the space of six months, 12 months, whatever. But uh, right now, it seems to me that uh, Trump is is uh, suitable for them. And uh, and his own his own approval ratings, while historically low, are not dropping. They're actually sort of well, hanging in there. Look, let's look at the opposition, because the Democrats uh, yeah. wounded uh, have now decided on the guy to lead them out of this. And it's a guy called Keith Ellison. No, it's Tom Perez. Oh, sorry, Tom, yeah. Tom Perez, a big part. He's the, he's the chair of the, the DNC. Chair, the chair of the DNC. Ellison was running Ellison against him. Ellison came second, a yeah. big part. Yeah. Ellison was from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And to some extent, letting Ellison become the chair of the DNC would have been a sort of a smart gesture to the left of the party. It would have been a way for the establishment of the party to say, yes, we feel your pain. We understand your anger. So Ellison is African-American. He's the only Muslim member of Congress. He converted to Islam uh, as a young man. So uh, Ellison, uh, and he was an early Bernie Sanders supporter. So Ellison was a, a, a prime candidate for saying to the left of the party, yeah, you know, we're, we're all in this together. After the quite divisive Hillary versus Sanders uh, uh, campaign in the primary season. Ellison now lost yesterday, uh, partly because he was targeted for his criticism of Israel. Uh, and so you have a situation where even this this sort of functionary uh, uh, position of chair of the DNC, and not a not very politically important position, in fact, couldn't be extended to uh, the likes of Keith Ellison. Instead, it went to somebody whose politics are not terribly different, but who was uh, was Labor Secretary, I think, under Obama, quite close to the Clinton wing of the party. So you have a situation where the I think that a lot of people who felt that the Democratic Party could be a vehicle for a kind of a vigorous opposition to Trump now ha- are feeling disappointed. Yeah. Now, whether there's well, any... Hang on, any, do they yeah. want to go down the Jeremy Corbyn route and, and say that, well, this is, this is us re-establishing the left, or do they want to actually become a credible opposition? Well, it's there? kind of hard to say the Jeremy Corbyn route when the Hillary Clinton route has just resulted in an ignominious defeat to the most buffoonish president that the United States has ever seen. So it seems like the, uh, and and opinion polls would strongly suggest that if they'd gone the Bernie Sanders route, they would have, they'd have a president in the White House. Uh, Well, yeah, I think if they'd run a hat, uh, they probably would have a Democratic hat in the White House. Um, There's a story here in the Sunday Business Post, Dan O'Brien, that that caught my attention because we remember when Trump came Mm. and and the harp and the the Colleen's dancing and the red carpet and the man who met Mr. Trump uh, when he was announcing doing big was Michael Noonan but Michael Noonan uh, in this article by Colette Sexton this morning um, US President Donald Trump is a danger to Ireland according to Michael Noonan which yeah. is a fairly strong statement he made that I was at that thing on Friday night when he made that statement and I was a little surprised by it just just panning back on the bigger picture thing you know in the next decade America is going to 
uh, mark the 250th anniversary of its founding. So America is a very long period as a, as, a, as a democracy, having checks and balances. So I'd be pretty confident that Trump domestically won't turn America into a non-democracy. A lot of people talking about Hitler and, you know, the 30s and whatever. But I'd be much more concerned, and also from a selfish perspective, that a U.S. president has a lot more power to influence the world than the domestic environment where there are fewer checks and balances. And this is what Noonan was referring to specifically the other night, is this proposal that America would introduce effectively a tax on imports. Okay? Now, you know, Noonan flags that this is a big risk for us. We export tens of millions of euro to the, to the US every year. If he puts this in place, that's going to reduce exports, that's going to cut jobs here. It's also going to lead to a trade war between Europe and the US, which will then have further knock-on effects. So this is a really, you know, the international system is much more fragile than the US democratic system. And to have somebody like Trump, who, you know, has bull in, in a china shop kind of characteristics, uh, go into that international system uh, could cause real and lasting damage to the way the world works, much more, in my view, than to the, the damage it'll cause to U.S. democracy. And you, you mentioned a trade war between Europe and the U.S. because of the protectionism that, that Trump will introduce. We are massively exposed, more exposed, I'd imagine, than other members of the European Union. And there we are with traditionally our biggest trading partner Absolutely. having left like that we're, we're more like Mexico. In terms of the, how much we export to the U.S. relative to the size of our economy, we're more like America's immediate neighbours, uh, Canada and Mexico. So that just gives you an idea of how plugged in we are. And then there's the foreign direct investment piece where so many U.S. companies base here to service the European market. So there's no country in Europe that is so plugged into the U.S. economy. And if there is a transatlantic uh, economic war between Europe and the, the EU and, and the U.S., we are going to really get scrunched in the middle. And is there anything? I mean, we are... Well, we're really squeeze. on top of it, though, Jonathan. That's what's great. <laughs> <laughs> Our politicians are really onto this and they're they're fully concentrating. I mean, I know you could argue, what, what can they do? Anyway, well, but that's, uh, I think the third, that's the downside of being very small. You know, if you make yourself very dependent on on outside forces, and those forces, everything goes wrong, and the Brits leave the EU, and you know, Europe's a mess, and then Trump and the whole things. You know, our international environment. You know, if you go back fifteen yeah, years you, ago, our international environment was just perfect. Britain was it with Tony Blair, and was in was in Europe, and Europe was working well, and 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 the US was you know was fine. And we had this kind of very stable world, and all of those poles that we depend on, Europe, Britain, and the US. Everything's changing. So we're, yeah, we're our, our even things we can control. For instance, public sector pay demands, strikes that are coming up, bus airing, you know, stuff that 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 is going to cost us money if 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 not handled. Mm. Things I, like I, that. I, despite the wonderful scenario that you just painted there, Dan, of how perfect it was, we still managed to make a bags of our economy pretty much on our own Absolutely. without any well, any input from the outside. Absolutely. I want to find out how poor old Storm Ewan is doing because um, he, he was billed as this big, nasty, mean storm. Uh, but it looks, uh, from what I've seen so far, Doris was a far more offensive storm uh, for a less offensive name. Let us know what it's like where you are. 53106. Is it breezy? Is it windy? Is it gusty? Let us know. Um, Dan O'Brien, you have a piece in the um, Sunday Independent today talking about housing. And, and we'll come to politics in a while, but uh, Europe and Brussels in particular are not too keen on how Simon Coveney and his department have tried to deal with the housing crisis. Yeah, I was, I was surprised this didn't get more coverage. The Eurocrats do these analysis of all of the Europe, Euro, uh, European countries every so often. So they did one last week and published it last week. And a big chunk of it was devoted to the housing issues. And, you know, they were 
quite critical in a whole range of areas, generally on issues around spatial planning, which you know we, we haven't done well in this country, issues around specific planning issues for, for homes in terms of opening up the, 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 the supply, uh, critical of the rent control measures and raising issues around social housing, whether the government's social housing plan was going the right way, as well as this issue of the banks and not the banks not dealing with the non-performing loans. So, so quite a lot there. Um, and, you know, obviously, given that Simon Coveney is, is one of the front runners to become Taoiseach or leader of Fine Gael, uh, that, that it didn't get more coverage because, you know, an ex- a significant external body that, that is slightly critical of government policy. Is, is it because is, it, uh, a lot of what we've tried to do is tinkering? We, you know, we try to get people to take out loans or to invest and we've we've tried to interview, introduce rent caps rather than an, a more substantial intervention. And effectively, we're rewarding people who already have their homes and we're, we're trying to put the brakes on those who might rent. I think there's inevitable, something something in that, and one of the reasons is clearly that a bigger intervention can't be done is because of the, the 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 constraint on public finance that we're still very indebted and all that sort of problem. So any government would fa- would face that issue. But you know, th- there's another criticism that the report makes of the buy to let scheme. You know, this buy to let scheme is an absolute disaster. It's going to it costs fifty million, and it will actually push up prices, and it will take money from essentially a poorer group in society and hand it over to a better off group. Like, never made any sense. Uh, pure political sort of being seen to do something. And quite rightly, the Commission uh, criticize, criticizes that as well. I, I saw, uh, it was a graph on Twitter, as usual, these things that I should have bookmarked and never did, but it was an, an, an indicative of a move away from home ownership. Yeah. Uh, in, in many countries, it's particularly acute in the UK, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is causing a problem there. Uh, yet we don't seem to be either inclined to move in that direction or at least in terms of policy moving in that direction? Oh, we have actually, because home ownership in Ireland peaked in 1991 uh, and it's been falling since. There's a whole number of reasons for that. One big aspect of it is because in 1991 there were very few non-nationals living here and the economy, our labour market has become much more globalised and internationalised and when people come to a country, uh, usually people, well, many people who come don't stay for long and certainly when people come they tend to rent. When you move to a new country you tend to rent rather than buy. So that's been one big dimension of causing home ownership higher prices of homes has been another more recently limited access to, uh, to to mortgages has been particularly for younger people has led to a decline in home ownership so more people rent than than in the past and that's been a trend and as you say it's a trend in many countries as well uh, on the issue of home ownership um, Alison the the Sunday business post front page story AIB was a basket case um, has been turned around to a certain degree uh, now they want to put it out to stud effectively back onto the stock exchange. Is it a good idea? Um, you know, we're going to see a lot of people moving maybe to, instead of owning their own homes, it's, uh, you know, you're going to rent them off the bank instead and you're not going to have the property at the end. Like, Is this going to be viewed as a positive thing that AIB is floating or is it in time going to be seen as a negative for all the people who find themselves in difficulty? I'm going to be perfectly honest here, Jonathan, and say I haven't a clue. <laughs> but I phrased my question so well. <laughs> it's a difficult one for, for the bank to get right, though, because it, it is the pariah yeah. in, in terms of all. So no matter what they do, in public yeah, relations I mean, terms, I, yeah, it's a I mean, It is. No, no matter what decision is taken, and it will be, no matter what decision is taken, it will be seen as something that is not friendly to the, the small man, if we can put it that way, because I suppose it is, it's it's not that long ago um, in terms of our economic crash and that, that, that memory still holds. But if I can for a moment address 
what Dan was saying there about the, the housing policy and that. And I think it's very interesting, as he said, that it didn't get more 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 interest, more coverage. Um because it is right in Simon Coveney's area. And if you even say that Simon Harris was basically told, get back in your box, you know, you have the temerity to think you can, you can put yourself forward in, in, in the leadership and um, look at the state of the health service. And I think that the timing of the, the leadership may suit Simon Coveney insofar as he made a number of pledges, not least, I think, that by was it June or July, that people, you know, in terms of hotel accommodation and people who are homeless, and that if, you know, it's too close to call at the moment to say who will win, but certainly some of his pledges will be coming home to roost further on in this year and as to whether he will have had success. So, I mean, the the timing of this suits him better than if, if it if, if it were later in the year when he would be more judged on, on his... I mean, he has really pinned so much of his political credibility on homelessness and housing, and but it's, it's way too soon yet to tell whether... Uh, whether he's having success. Yeah, the political dimension to this is really interesting, and I think it's important. One of the aspects of this AIB story and the question of how uh, or what exactly it's going to sell and to whom is that the, in the paper today it says that there's a, a hesitancy about letting vulture funds take up too much of the loan book, precisely because the, at the moment the state is the major shareholder in AIB, and it would look politically bad to... Uh, for So there is some sense in which AIB is at some level a public asset and has to be treated in in that way. In other words, we can't just let the market uh, take its, there's my paper falling to the floor, we can't just let the market uh, play out. We have some political constraints on the operation of the market here. But that seems to be a hard thing for the uh, political and economic uh, elite in this country to sort of admit. And to, uh, you know, uh, the last time I was in the studio, actually, there was a Fine Gael politician here talking about the, how they couldn't let any policy in relation to homelessness distort the market. We can't distort the market. And that basic idea that there's a that there is a, a pure thing out there called the market that we have to protect, even if it means letting people sleep on the street. Um, but you it, know, it, the, anytime we interfere with the market in any way, it doesn't work. Reference what uh, Alison has just been talking about there, the promises that have been made that it simply aren't going to be met. Yes, but the, is that interfering with the market? These are these are tiny little tinkerings at the edge. Instead of having a, a, a real public housing program, I mean, you know, I mean, Dan talked about the public finances, and it's true that Irish states do have to work within very narrow constraints now in terms of how they spend. But there still are choices. In the last budget, the Irish government chose to actually spend less and cut more than what it uh, what it could have done. And the idea that the uh, that that the market is somehow sacred is already questioned by the very uh, act that AIB has to go through in terms of what yeah. it can sell. Well, after that's home. it, exactly. It that. needs to be a public bank. We have a, an opportunity for public asset and we need that. We never wanted that. AIB in state ownership. It ended oh, up yeah. in state ownership. If we had suggested, I would say, six years ago that AIB was going to be ready to float in 2017, we would have done a little dance. Hmm. Net now here we are and we're all going, oh, whether is it the right thing? Can I, just can I, can I pick up on that point of tinkering doesn't work? I, I disagree with that. I, I'm non-ideological in this thing. I think sometimes markets work and sometimes states work. And when states don't work, there can be a case to have more market. And when markets don't work, there can be a case to have more states. You know, we have massive interventions. Most of our our health provision is public. So we have massive in, interventions where, where the state in education is another big example. So the state does things that often does things successfully. So I, my, my personal view is that we shouldn't get too ideological about whether it should be state or whether it should be market 
we should try and get the best of both. Now, in in, in this, in, in specifically in terms of the banks, yes, the, because the market failed, the state had intervened to or, to prevent the banking system collapsing. The, the question now is, how can we do we keep the bank in public ownership, as Harry says? Is is that something that would be good for for society and the economy, or do we sell it off, try and get as much as we can for it, and use that to pay down our debt to make us less vulnerable to crisis in the future? You know, these are things, these are big debates they'll to never, have. They'll, ne- they'll never do that. They'll never use it to write down the debt unless they're forced to do it. They, well, they are, we are being forced to do it. That's what the, that's what Europe is forcing, that if when, if they raise 10 billion from the sale of AIB, they'll have to use that to pay down the debt. So that's, that's what's going to happen, at least at the moment. Rather than spend it, they're going to have to use it to pay down the debt. So the, 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 there is a debate as to whether you'd want to keep a bank in public ownership. My, my view in this case is that, that the, it should be privatised and the money should be used to pay down the debt um, and the banks should be better regulated in the future. Um, there's an interview with Richie Boucher in the business section of, of the Indo today as well. Someone whose interest is first and foremost to make as much money for the bank as possibly can. Uh, there's this conflict between the private commercial considerations and, and, and the wider public interest. Is it ever going to be reconciled? Because a bank is a bank and should not, unless it was maybe a development vehicle or something like that, be run by the state. Well, th- this is this is one of the arguments that if you state-owned banks end up be, being uh, uh, taking decisions that are not that are, there's political political interference. There can be political interference in in banks when they're run uh, by the state. Now, I think it is important to say that you know if you compare in in the U.S., if you fall behind on your mortgage, the system is absolutely ruthless. You can be out very very quickly, and the same is true in most countries. Our level of repossessions is a fraction of other countries, and that's I think in, in, to some extent is a kind of cultural thing where the banks do not want to be seen to be. Uh, pushing people out of their houses. I think it probably goes back to the to the 19th century and that folk memory we have of people being evicted. Um, and that's not just a legal constraint. That seems to me to be more to do with the banks not wanting to have bad PR of being seen to be throwing people out of their homes. So it's not just a legal issue. But is that why Harry mortgage rent is being is being talked about here? That we're not mm. going to throw people out of their family homes. There'll be no uh, calls to radio stations of people who are <laughs> you know the guys are at the door. The sheriff yes. is here. They're going to let people stay there. Long term, it's it's not great for them because that means it's not their property. So they'll be paying rent for the rest of their lives. But is it is it an Irish solution to an Irish problem? Well, it is in it is in the sense that the banks end up winning. Uh, that's the <laughs> that is basically the Irish solution to the Irish problem is that uh, you know people lose assets uh, and they keep and they end up continuing to pay banks. I mean that's really how that uh, how it comes but down. Right, or not paying because yeah. people people you know there are people who are in homes who are, are who are not paying. That's why there yeah. there's a non-performing loan. You know and, and people you know I think it should be said that somebody who bought a million euro home. And is not paying uh, the mortgage on it. That has ultimately been subsidised by other people in society. Yeah. Now, is it fair? Because most people don't live in million euro homes. That everyone, people who live in smaller homes, are subsidising people who live in million million euro homes who actually can't afford to pay the mortgage on it. And there is no one politically really that wants to this. I, I completely agree with Dan. This is seen as an ap- absolutely verboten in terms of, of, of going there politically. I mean, if you even look back on how it took years for us to get a sense of the real extent of the problem, mm. even how many mortgages there were in distress, and and and, and to what extent? And I would argue we probably so still don't have a real. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. Is. no, no, no. I mean, it is because it's, it's yeah. hidden in this way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the repossessions are. And I mean, it is an I- it is absolutely an Irish solution, and I think that if if in, in another society, 
this is not the, the solution that the banks would go for. But the banks are recognising that this is the only workable solution for them in terms of um, palatability, not just for the public, but for, for politicians. But meanwhile, we have a situation where, as, as Dana said, we've been kind of increasing the rental uh, portion of the housing market for a quarter century, but we haven't actually got to the point where we give renters the, the level of protection and the level of controls. We actually just had a, a solution which essentially was a guaranteed uh, increase in income every year for landlords and really we're looking for at least for the next couple of years so we're looking at a situation where uh, renters in particular whatever about repossessions of uh, of of people's uh, homes who aren't paying their mortgages. We certainly are seeing people losing uh, rental uh, homes all the time. And that still seems to be off the political radar. Dan O'Brien, Alison O'Connor and Harry Brown are going through the newspapers with me, but we will pause from the news pages and go to the sports pages. Owen Sheehan from Off the Ball is with us. Good morning, Owen. Good morning. How are you keeping? Good. Now, we talk about the GAA because that is in uh, some of the news sections as opposed to the sports sections, but there's an interesting story of the Sunday Times about Mo Farah's coach. What's that about? Yeah, it's probably the big sports story of the day and it's at the the front of the news section of the Sunday Times. Farah's coach accused of doping abuse. Uh, It reads on this side of the Irish Sea anyway in our edition of the Sunday Times. So the inside team at the paper this week, uh, they've revealed the interim findings of uh, the USADA investigation into Alberto Salazar's programme at the Nike Project in Oregon. So the leaks that they, uh, they've they got their hands on this week, they revealed that Salazar used prohibited drug infusions and prescription medicines to boost the testosterone and improve performance of several of his runners. But perhaps the most uh, interesting part of this is that it says that six of his athletes broke the rules by receiving intravenous in- infusions of illegal quantities of this substance called L-carnitine. Now that may seem awfully complex, but the one thing that stood out to me is these leaked emails from Salazar that they revealed this morning that the drug itself is not banned but the substance or the amount of L-carnitine that he was giving to his athletes apparently equates to the effect that he might get from a blood transfusion or blood doping. So it's uh, pretty heavy stuff here. Uh, I must uh, just point out as well that the report draws no conclusions whatsoever on Mo, Mo Farah saying that an investigation into his use of L-carnitine continues. Well, continuing that that vein that the Sunday Times have of, of doping and they're not letting it go, to, no. be, to be fair to the reporters on the inside team there. Uh, soccer-wise this afternoon... Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Stoke uh, v Spurs. We've got it live on Off the Ball this afternoon. Nathan Murphy is going to be joined in White Hart Lane by Gary Breen. Uh, in terms of all those sports pages, Brian Kerr will be joining Jerry Thornley of the Irish Times alongside Joe from 12 uh, to review all of those. Of course, it's EFL Cup uh, day as well in uh, in soccer, so we'll be keeping an eye on that throughout today. Uh, Johnny Murphy and Bernard Jackman will also be with us on the show a little bit later on to get into the nuts and bolts of Ireland's win against France yesterday. Uh, while in GAA, I guess this is kind of uh, the hot topic of the day. It doesn't lead so many papers but it's worth pointing out that it's carried in pretty much all the sports sections I guess it came out ah, quite it's late the, it's in the new sections as well which means it must be a story and this, this is the move like every September well it used to be the case every September there was a scramble for tickets not so much in recent years for us poor Cork people but the scramble for tickets for the first and the third weekends uh, now we're going to be looking for tickets for August instead what's the rationale behind this well it's completely to do with the club player and 
I personally think it's fair enough. I think once you get to September, say if you're from somewhere like Cork, for example, it would actually be a good example in their heyday, particularly when you've got potential teams in the first week and the third week of September. Suddenly you're looking at October for the continuation of your club championships, which may not have been played since June, perhaps even May in some occasions, depending on how many games you'll have. This will allow the club player to get out and play their games in September again. And we won't get these absolutely absurd stories about a team in Clare, for example, playing three games in two days or something like that you see now the, the, the cynic in me and God knows he's never too far from the surface in all of this is saying the Super 8 model that they've come up with has an awful bang of commercial gain uh, for the association that they're going to make more money than they would have out of the quarterfinals with maybe you know Phil and Croke Park with 15-20,000 people they, they'll get more out of this more bang for their book oh 100% there's no question that it's going to be financially lucrative to them but the reason it's going to be financially lucrative is because fans will come in their droves to these games if you're from one of those counties a Kerry a Mayo a Dublin this is fantastic for you if you're from a lesser county so to speak it's not so good for you at all because the golfing class between these teams is probably going to increase the amount of top-end games available for the top-end teams is just going to widen every single year now it and starts it, next summer I was going to say it's starting next summer obviously yeah. the championship this year will run as normal Alison you, you spotted something different at the GAA Congress yesterday when you were looking at it I online. did uh, just before I, I think it's going to be really weird trying to get used to um, all Ireland finals in August, and it, August is such a holiday month. But I know that, a lot the of people other side are people actually, will be away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I have to say, I have to give some credit to him. I'm thinking how how well trained I have my husband. Um, <laughs> in that, it was the watching the the news last night, and I was actually reading, and he freeze framed the TV and said, "Take a look at that." And it was yesterday's Congress and it was as big a mantle as I have seen in quite some time. Mantle being a panel with nothing but men. But not only that, when I looked at it, I saw that not only was it a mantle, it was possibly one of the, the most concentrated audiences I'd ever seen either. Because <laughs> when I looked, when we when I when we looked at it and played it on, I don't think there was one single female but is, is that not the, part the of the structure of the association that the women <clears throat> I use the phrase the women just to annoy yeah, you yeah. Um, have their own association and their own congress at a separate time they do and you'd even you'd, you'd even wonder about that but there are women involved with the male aspect if I can put it that the GAA at all at all levels you know and I'm not uh, not suggesting I, I realise that it's over overwhelmingly male you know in terms of the the, the the structure the the members and all of that but I think it's it's utterly extraordinary to have looked at that and to see it to be it's, it was it it just had a bang of make the sandwiches ladies and wash and wash the kit <laughs> well it's the GAA maybe they might yeah. have moved on as yeah, much but I think in we recent saw, years I mean there was an interesting committee Dahl committee a couple of weeks ago where um what's his name from the IRFU Philip uh, Philip Brown you know and and I'm breaking up the studio here oh, good, and good. um you know to, and the involvement of women and you know this whole issue of, of of them having more female representation on their boards and that and I have to say I was distinctly unimpressed by uh, by what I heard and 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 it, unfortunately it's seen as as being very militant but th- these sort of situations as we saw in politics really until you introduce quotas all happens. I'd say have a funny feeling we'd be looking at that in 10 years time and still seeing the same type of representation. Aren't you in off the ball on the way from 12 o'clock? Thank you very much for that. Let, let's talk politics because it is uh, all over the papers this morning. We've been, we've been dancing around it because look, let's face it, 
if you're not in Fianna Gael, who leads the party really is an irrelevance to you. But it, uh, Harry, it, it is Simon versus Leo. I mentioned it's kind of the modern equivalent of the Pepsi challenge. They taste kind of similar, but uh, ultimately one of them is going to prove to be more popular than the other. Yeah, and both operating, as, as we said earlier, within the same constraints. And the newspaper stories trying to hype it up are pretty hilarious. On the one hand, you've got Simon Coveney in a secret tape, very slightly trash-talking Fianna Fáil, as, as, as though, uh, you know, that possibly would be controversial with the Fine Gael grassroots. And then on the other hand, you have the shocking story that Leo Varadkar has been out trying to win support. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I got the impression the, that the Polkars were just scrambling to get something just to put on the front page. This <laughs> just scrambling. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is that, uh, I, I, I said it earlier, nobody cares. If you're not in Fine Gael, it doesn't really matter because... Well, I think people care insofar as they're fed up with listening to it in terms of uh, what happened with Morris McCabe and the, the coverage we had the week before and the, those those sex abuse allegations, which people saw on, on, on Primetime and which uh, by Katie Hannan and which by colleague in The Examiner, McClifford has, has covered so, so thoroughly and so well. People were genuinely very, very shocked by that and that something like that could happen in, in, in the Ireland of today. And I think they are fed up that it's been knocked off the agenda by what they see as this utterly ridiculous navel gazing and that it's not even a proper leadership contest, if you know what I mean. I think they might understand uh, something like this being kicked off and happening and there being a date given and it's going to be over and there'll be change and we'll move on. But it's this ridiculous shadow boxing, this pretense that nothing is happening and that it and this obsession with with the personalities and is that rather the, than than any sense of what of 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 the policy or or what makes either man different in terms of um of what they would do and you were writing about this during the week and and you know the questions of why Simon Coveney is appearing in photographs with his wife and and Leo Varadkar is always put up on pictures of his own and how that has become something of a focal point is it going to be more of that in the weeks ahead given the yeah, lack I of mean, substance I, in the I discussion I mean I even look I even have misgivings about I thought long and hard about even writing the column because I think that you um, it puts Leo at an immediate disadvantage even to discuss it and what I, I was writing was calling out what I saw as the Irish Independent in particular I felt targeting um, Leo Varadkar in their use of photographs headlines and the and the conflate the conflation of those Michael McDool addresses it in the business post this morning actually you know wondering wh- where it's coming from and I um, you know I wish it weren't an issue but it actually it will be for some, no more than, you know, there was a majority of people voted in the same-sex marriage referendum. There was still a sizable number of people who voted no. They will be represented with the, within Fine Gael. And I think this is why the Varadkar camp would have wanted a shorter campaign. They would have felt it would have suited better and that this sort of issue wouldn't, wouldn't have come up. I really sincerely hope that it doesn't become mm. more of an issue and it's not something you know, that stands in his way, that both men are judged, you know, for for what they stand for rather than, than whether they have a, you know, whether they're in a heterosexual family unit or in, or yeah, in something I, I, else. I totally agree with that, Alison. But I think we, we've, there's a risk that we've gone from being a homophobic society and the pendulum has gone the other way where everyone is supposed to just Turn their uh, be blind to it, and then oh, no, it shouldn't that's, be a good listen, thing. So let me just Dan, let me just let me just yeah. let me just say, like, what is important about a politician? Political judgment, political philosophy, competence, record—they are the most important things. But other things do matter to some people. Now, personally, to me, 
It doesn't matter. His sexual orientation doesn't matter. But let me just give an example. Somebody, for, for somebody in life, the biggest issue could be childcare and education. And somebody might take the view, well, okay, this is a guy who doesn't have kids. He doesn't experience what I experience and what takes up a huge amount of my time. And because he's a gay guy, he's unlikely to have that. Now, somebody could say, okay, who do I prefer to be Taoiseach? A guy who experiences what I experience or a guy who doesn't? And they may say, not because of they're homophobic, but just might say, okay, I prefer to have a Taoiseach who... Just like somebody from Dublin might prefer to have a Dub- Dublin Taoiseach over a rural Taoiseach because they understand more about their everyday life. So I'm saying that, you know, it is not a big thing. But for us to say, let's be blind to it and let's not allow anyone to consider it. No. Dan, I don't, dis- I, don't okay, disagree. So just- I don't disagree with anything that you have said. And I think there's political legitimacy in raising it in terms of how it might affect an eventual outcome and affect the numbers. What I do have an issue with is a newspaper using three days in a row. It began with the Sunday Independent last Sunday and then the Irish Independent the two following days. One photograph of Simon Coveney and his wife uh, together at, at a Fine Gael wedding last Saturday. And right alongside that, one of Leo on his own. Yeah. Three days in a row and on but the third a- day to have a strap line on the front page about the importance of the political spouse. Yeah, the pictures inside, one of Simon Coveney and his daughter, a piece to the side of Leo and his partner. Okay. It's 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 smacks of dog w- whistle w- w- Well, hang on a second. Would we... To, to be fair, they can follow what editorial line they want. Would we be asking if Leo, no, if Leo newspapers do, do this, all the if time Leo in Varadkar terms of was married, favoring, as favoring. we voted for last year, I don't think we'd have as much of an issue. It's the fact that he's a single guy uh, who's running to be Taoiseach. Any single guy running to be Taoiseach, gay or straight, is going to have questions I, asked about uh, who uh, they're going listen, out with. Absolutely, I, 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 I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. And I agree with Dan in terms of that. By if to say that you clamp down completely on it is is ridiculous. Anyway, it's, look, it's look, an, it's, it's, let's go back you know, to the actual politics. The fact is, they're both very wealthy men, and that will probably be the thing that disconnects them the most. Free, from brief, them briefly, very briefly, are we absolutely unsurprised that the opinion polls really don't give us a government based on the numbers that are there this week? No, not at all. Not yeah. at all. I mean, I think it is interesting to see the bounce for Sinn Féin. They're up five to, to 19. They will have been very fed up over the last while. I mean, going back to, we're saying it's a, a year to the day of the election, you know, going back to their election result last year, they, you know, they wouldn't have got the result they wanted. I guess you look at the vote of no confidence that they tabled last week. Okay. And I think that's obviously... I threw out a question there, for finishing on politics, about how Storm uh, Ewan is getting on. And Graham and, uh, tweeted, any infant of Prague statues that were put out to prevent the worst effects of the storm are well on their way to Prague so Ewan is definitely having an effect we say thank you to the panel Dan O'Brien Alison O'Connor and Harry Brown